Thank you for tuning in again to the Rocky Brown Ministries podcast. I am Rocky Brown. Man, that's some good singing. Woo! And good playing. Praise them. <laughs> He's a he is a fantastically talented musician and singer. Hey, I am glad to be here with you all tonight. I tell you, I've uh, I, I preach, administer in a lot of different settings, but I'm going to tell you that play, to come here is my favorite place to come. I would tend to one come here and preach as I would to preach in any church. And I'll tell you why that is, is because when I come here, there are people who are actually wanting help. They're actually wanting help. Now, you go to most of these churches nowadays, and people, they don't really want help. You know, the Lord said to me the other day as I was driving down the road, He said, the difference, no, I was actually in Walmart when He said this to me. He said, the difference between the time when Jesus was on the earth and ministered to people and the difference between then and now in the church is that people then came to him believing that God wanted to do something for them and could do something for them. That's why they came to him in the droves. But you go to most of these modern churches today and they don't want help because they really don't think that God would help them or he could help them or he wants to help them or whatever else. You know, so you you might one man said it like this. He said, um, you know, people sometimes would come to him and say, "Well, pray for me, brother." And they say, "Well, what do you what do you want me to pray for you for?" Well, nothing in particular. Well, if you don't have nothing in particular to pray for, that's what you're going to get. It's nothing in particular. See, God's merciful, and He. I'm going to be honest with you. He wants to meet your need more than you want your need met. If you can believe that, that's tough to believe, though, isn't it? Right? Because I mean, you know, where there's many people that preach many, many different versions of God and Christianity, right? Some, pre- some people preach Him from anger, right? Like He's this old hateful man sitting in heaven looking for a reason to just strike you dead, right? Anybody ever heard any preaching like that? I've heard a little, I've heard a little preaching like that. Preach against tattoos and long hair and bad pass and everything else. I've got two of those three. Had long hair at one time. Saw so this gentleman's hair right here. Thank God for thinking, man, I might grow my hair back out. Man, I, 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 I'm digging that. I like that. Well, it may not be, but still yet. I mean, but you know, the thing about it is, is that there's this phenomenal statement in the first epistle of John, and it only shows up in the fourth chapter, and it's said twice. First John chapter 4, verse 8 says, God is love. And then verse 16 says, God is love. Well, love is a very broad spectrum term. We love everything nowadays. Today, the word love is horribly abused. It's horribly misused. We love everything, don't we? We love cheeseburgers. We love Ohio State football. We love cowboy hats. We love all these different things. <laughs> did you? Did you? Did you, did anybody, did anybody see that thing on Facebook there the other day that said, how do you make a high state cookies? Said you put them in a bowl and beat them for three hours. <laughs> now I'm from Ohio originally, and I tell you what, I grew up hating Ohio State football because that's all you hear about. I'm from central Ohio, and that's all you hear about. And so just to be rebellious, I was a Michigan fan just for, just for meanness, just to be against the Ohio, just to be against the Buckeyes. Well, but, so, but, you know, that word love, we love everything. Well, did you know that I found 29 different words or word phrases put together that are translated from Hebrew words and Greek words that are translated into the English words love, loves, lover, loved, beloved. And it covers a broad, all that, there's 29 different words, 15 in Hebrew, and 14 in the Greek New Testament. Now I say that I found at least 29 between the two languages because every time I think I've got it pinned down that I found it all, there's another few that'll show up out of nowhere. So I just keep, I, I open that up there for when I find more. So, you know, I may keep on finding more. But all of these different words describe very specific types of love. But yet love in the English language 
is as broad spectrum as the word hat. I mean, you could have a cowboy hat, you could have a ball, you, you could have a baseball cap that's a hat, you could have an Indiana Jones hat, that's what they call a fedora, I think. You could have a top hat, you can have uh, all these different kinds of hats, right? Then you start breaking that down, well, what kind of hat is it? Who made that hat? What color is it? What's it got on it? All these, you, you see what I'm saying? So when we start looking at love, and we start understanding that there's all of these different types of love, then it begs to reason, what kind of love is God? If it says God is love, see what I'm saying? See, see, the love that God is is translated from a very specific Greek word. It's used about 109 times in the Greek New Testament. It's translated from the Greek word agape, Strong's number G0026. So you can think about it like this. This is not just how God loves you. This is what makes God, God. It's the very essence of who He is. It's, it's what makes Him, Him. If you could open Him up, that's what He is. He's the very purest form of love. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, you're saying who he is. But uh, the return of Jesus was what? It was also the return of the church. And the church was within every bloodline to be combined within pretty much total vision. Well, when we, see, when we say return, he's not returned. The first time he came was the first coming. He's going to return. But the first coming... I hope I'm in heaven. <laughs> the first coming... Now, the church is the... Now, the church of the body... Of Christ, the church on the earth, it represents Christ. But what do you think? The end when he returns, boom, everybody's gone. Is that what you think? No, I don't think that at all. Okay, when he returns, what? I'm trying to figure it out. Okay, well, let's talk about that real quick. I feel like I grew up in a church family. My parents went to church. Anyways, um, I feel like when he returns, we're going to be blinded. We won't. He will kneel. It says that we will kneel down above. He will come down on a white horse. But it also says he would pick those who believe him with him, and the ones who stay on earth is the afterlife. Well, so you have the rapture, which is the taking out of the church. Okay, so the rapture is the removal of the church so that Antichrist can rise, so that Antichrist can grip the earth, take control of the earth. Then you have the tribulation, which is seven years on the earth, and which has never been before and will never be again. That's a time in which has never been on the earth, a time of literal hell on the earth in which has never been before. That's what it is. No, you haven't, you haven't seen nothing yet, buddy. Where Revelation tells us that, what, that hail balls weighing 200 pounds will fall from heaven and men will blaspheme God. The Holy 30 chapters was 22 and then 30 or 1 through 8 Genesis. This COVID, uh, man, it's, it's, it blows my mind how people are so blind to like what's really taking place. Yeah, well, that's another plague that's been that's on the earth. But anyway, going back to love. So this very specific type of love, if you don't understand who, how God loves you specifically, how He feels about you, then what is to say? What's the difference between how God loves you and how you love cheeseburgers? <laughs> see that? So when I come along, a guy like me, see, love's been horribly prostituted and misused and abused. And so when ministers like me come along and they say, come on in here, brother. Come on in here. But when guys like me come along and say, hey, you know what? God loves you. You know what happens to you? Your mind automatically jumps to the greatest form of love that you've known. Jesus was the payment of fornication. Pretty much, you know. All sin. Yeah, he was offered up for the propitiation for all sin. All right, so in that is... Understanding this love. It's hard to understand because I tell you what, this week I gave my life. Sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, I gave my life over to the Lord last week. Well, everything I, you know, our minds think negative, you know. But before I go to say something, I can hear the Lord now telling me, like, I'm with you. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm not schizophrenic or nothing. It's real. <laughs> no. Like, well, I would hope that. I would hate to think that I was a born-again believer and a child of God, and he didn't speak to me. It's crazy to me. Like, now I feel like I'm walking on air. Well, see, he's real. <laughs> see, you have to understand, see, the kingdom of God is a real place. The kingdom of heaven is a real place. The throne of God is an actual geographical location in heaven, and it's happening and going on right there right now. The party is going on. There's no sickness, disease, death, <laughs> plague, infirmity. There's no nothing going on there. See that? 
So we want, we want to understand here, because I'm, I'm setting this up so that when we look at this, what's going on in John chapter 4 with this meeting with this woman, I want you to understand what's taking place here. Why Jesus shows up and does what he does, right? So we want to understand this, that God is love, and it's not just how he loves you, but this is the very essence of who he is. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So you could say it like this. You've never, you wouldn't see Jesus do anything on the earth in his earthly ministry that if God the Father came here, he would do differently. Jesus did everything just like his Father would. Hebrews chapter 1 talks about it. It says that he is the express image of his likeness. Talking about Jesus is the express image of his likeness, God the Father. Well, when you start looking those words up, it means an exact replica in every way. Down to the most minute of details, he's an exact replica. So when we see Jesus ministering, think about it like this. Jesus never worked one miracle. He said, the words that I speak, they're not mine. And the works that I do, it's not me. It's the Father in me that does the works. So Jesus was working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit of God and everything that he did. He did inside the perfect will of God, and he was making known God's perfect will in each and every situation. So then when we go to John chapter 4, we see an interesting meeting between an unwanted woman and the Messiah. Now, why did, now see, I started out here, we talked about love as a broad spectrum term, right? has a lot of different meanings and a lot of different degrees. Well, Messiah, in common church teaching, is directed toward Jesus. And that's right, and that's true. Messiah would be derived from the Hebrew, right? And then Christ is the Greek version of the word Christos. So you're seeing Christos, Christ, is the same version of the Hebrew root word that's translated Messiah. Okay? But there's an interesting thing that you should know about that Hebrew word there that's used, translated Messiah, is that it's a broad spectrum term, so it doesn't, although it does apply to Jesus, it doesn't just apply to him in the context in which it's used in the Old Testament. Yes, ma'am. Rabbi is a teacher. No, that's fine. So when we see Messiah, that Hebrew word that's used, if we track how that word's used, we'll see that that means anointed one. So that term in Hebrew was a, could have been a, in different scriptures throughout the Old Testament is applied to the high priest. It's applied to the king. It's applied to the prophets. But when we jump to the New Testament we see this term Christ. And that means God's anointed. It means the one that God chose to do the job. Now Jesus happens to be God's only son. And he's just as much equally God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So when we set this, when we set this up, we want to know all this information because the more information that you know, the better prepared that you are to receive what we're going to talk about. See that? See, we think that we hear a 45-minute church sermon and we're ready to go on and take on the world. There's nothing, there's no job in the world that would train you for 45 minutes and now you're qualified for management. But a lot of Christians live like that, don't they? They think they've heard a one-hour sermon and they're ready to go. I'll tell you, I've been studying this thing for several years. And the further I go, the more I'm learning. I really don't know much. I just keep on going, keep on learning, you know, and then the more you go, you look back and you think, dear Lord, how could I have been so ignorant? So let's, let me set this up for you. Now, Jesus, go to John, we'll look at John chapter 4. I'm going to read that to you. I'm going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read some verses, and then we're going to break this thing down and look at it because when you see this in truth, this is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that you'll ever see. It's beautiful. Verse 1 says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now keep that in mind. What did it say right there? He needed to go through Samaria. That means he must have had something to do, huh? 
So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave, his, gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now that sixth hour is counted from about 6 a.m. or daybreak. So that's noon. So you hear terms in the New Testament. He was taken on the third hour, nailed to the, he was nailed to the cross on the third hour, about the noon, about the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour he yielded up his spirit. That'd be 3 o'clock. So that counts from about 6 a.m. on. So the sixth hour would be noon, 12 o'clock. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one who you have now is not your husband in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem, the place where one ought, is where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> and at that point, at this point, <laughs> whoo, uh, I got to get on track here. It gets me excited. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know of. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And do, do, not, do you not say, there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying, in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you have not labored, Others have labored, and you have entered in to their labors. And then it goes on to say, And the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe 
not because of what you said. For we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. All right, so if you read that, just like I read that to you, and you have no real historical knowledge of what's taken place up to this point, that doesn't mean a lot to you probably. What didn't to me until I really started reading, I mean, it's this wonderful story, you know, it's this wonderful account and all this different stuff. But when I, as I started breaking this down, see, the word of the Lord came unto me two weeks ago giving me this message to preach here tonight. And so as I started to break this thing down and looked at it, I started doing a little research, started checking things out, looking at the history with the Samaritans, because there are things in here that take place that make me question what caused this person to say what they just said. See, I think that we oftentimes we look at the Word and we read it and we go, okay, blah, 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 and then we're not touched by any of this stuff that's said here, and then something may stick out to us. But unless you start studying and really start digging in and looking, digging, looking for the gold, you won't find it. Because, see, here's something important, right? What's it say? It says that Jesus was leaving Judea to go to Galilee, but it says that he needed to go to Samaria. Well, to us, that wouldn't make... That's not doesn't sound like too big of a deal, does it? That's kind of like me. I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to Williamsburg, and on my way home, I need to stop and get gas because I forgot to get gas earlier today. That's a true statement. But it says Jesus needed to go to Samaria. Now, if you don't understand the almost 1,000 years of bad blood between the inhabitants of Samaria and the Jews you're going to miss a lot because there's almost a thousand years of bad blood between the inhabitants of the Jews that are there, or the inhabitants of the Samaria that's there now and the Jews that are they've lived there for a thousand years bad blood hatred you'll go on to read that Jesus goes I think it's in Luke it says that he went to one city in Samaria and they wouldn't even let him come in the city bad Bad, bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. So, also, the Samaritans claim that the Jews are illegitimate. (laughs) That they're illegitimate worshipers of God. And the Jews claim that the Samaritans are illegitimate worshipers of God. So when you see this context played out here, this woman says, well, you know, you all say that we must worship in Jerusalem, and we worship here on this mountain. Well, history tells us that they had a temple on that mountain that was destroyed, potentially destroyed, in fights between the the residents of Samaria and the Jews. And in that, they destroyed their temple. Well, that'd be reason to have bad blood, wouldn't it? I mean, it's, you know, I mean, they got, there's a lot of bad blood. So Jesus is in Judea, all right, which is south, all right? And then he's got to go to Galilee, which is north. Samaria is not necessarily on the way. You might even say it like this, as he kind of went out of his way to go to Samaria, right? So when you understand that there's all of this bad blood between the Samaritans, it starts to unravel a little bit of the picture, doesn't it? Some of the things that are said, that this woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan. Why is it that you're speaking to me? See that? But see, Jesus. It said. But see, the, the word said he needed to go to Samaria, didn't it? Now, oh, going on even further than that. I'm glad I looked at my notes. So the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now that doesn't seem very. It, it takes a while. I tell you, I tell you, if you, you won't go sleep. You read Leviticus. Oh, <laughs> yep, yep, that's a good chapter. No, it's fine. So, but the Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch. So we understand this. The assembly of the Old Testament is it breaks down into law, which is the Pentateuch, the five, first five books, wisdom, and prophets. 
major and minor prophets, right? So wisdom would be Psalms, Proverbs, poetry is Job. That's I, I don't know how in the world they rated Job poetry. I've read oh, Job. Is it Psalm poetry? I think it is, yeah. Yep, yep. And so I've read Job probably twenty-five times. Hey, there's no, there's nothing. Job wasn't no poet, and I know it. I can tell you that much. <laughs> and so, but the Samaritans didn't adhere to the prophets and wisdom. They only went by their version of the Pentateuch, and they so they they didn't they didn't. That's the first five books of the Bible. Pentateuch. Pentateuch. Yep. That's Don't ask me to spell it. I can barely pronounce it. I got it in my notes here. No, 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 it's fine. Right? So, the, so you see all this bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews because they won't even read the same word. They don't listen to the prophets who were Jews. All, I mean, all, this is horrible bad blood between these people. Very important that we're setting the stage. We're beginning to lay the groundwork, setting the stage, painting the picture for this encounter that's taking place. Now, Jesus ends up at the well at, tw at noon. Doesn't seem like such a big deal, does it? People gather water from the well all the time, didn't they? Right? What's the big deal about him meeting this woman at this well at noon? Well, tradition and history tells us that if we look and we study and we read, that women went in groups to wells early of the morning. And they went in groups. Why? Safety in numbers. It's not like today where you've got a local police force and they're, you know, and they're kind of patrolling things. I mean, you know, at any moment, they could have been raided by the Syrians or other countries and all this different stuff making war, you know, or just bandits and bad people all together, right? And so women, they all went in groups to the well to draw water in the cool of the morning. Well, why do you think this woman is by herself in the middle of the day? Well, we don't really know that she was a prostitute, but it does say that she had five husbands, and the man that she's living with now was not her husband. Now, it's all very important. Right? Why is that important? Because this world wants to take your past and even your present and paint the picture of the rest of your life with it. You'll never be any more than what you are right now. You ever heard that? Yeah. You'll never be more. You're just trash. You're just worthless. No one loves you. No one cares about you. You've done this all your life. You've done this for 20 years. You're never going to be any different than what you are right now. There's no hope. Anybody ever heard that? I have. You may look at this super fancy $23 work coat from Walmart and think this guy is a high roller. <laughs> but I have found myself in some very bad situations in my life. You may look at me and say, what's this guy know about drug abuse and alcohol abuse? What's he know about almost killing a man in Ohio? What's he know about almost doing prison time because of that? How is this guy <laughs> that's preaching this word to me know anything about where I've been? Well, I watch a lot of TV, so I mean... <laughs> I'm just kidding. So see, this woman... Let's just call it what it is. She's an immoral woman, right? This immoral woman goes to the well to draw water in the middle of the day. This day is just like every other day. Yesterday when that woman was at the well, she had no earthly idea that in 24 hours' time, she would have a life-changing life encounter with the King of Heaven and Earth. Who knows how many years, how many days that woman had went out there to that well by herself being scoffed at and mocked and sneered at and looked down on 
as she went out of town by herself, walking past Sister Bertha better than you, out of the town with her water pot because of what she's done. Unwanted. Unloved. And yet, in this one particular day, everything changed for that woman, didn't it? Now, why is this so important? Well, there's a number of reasons why this is important. Reason number one would be, do you think it was just by chance that the king was at the, was at the well on this particular day, in this particular moment in time when this woman is at the well? He didn't just accidentally run into her. What did it say? What did it start out saying? It said he was in Judea and, and what? He knew I'm going to Galilee, but I got to stop by and see that woman at the well. So you think about that. This was a prearranged meeting. Jesus knew where he was going, and he knew what he was going to do. That woman had no earthly idea. So not only is he going in the basically the backyard of his enemy. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself in some rough situations and find yourself in the backyard of your enemy? You ever been? You ever been there? <laughs> I've been there a time or two. <laughs> I've been there a time or two. Found myself in positions I shouldn't have found myself in. So, he finds himself in the backyard of his enemy to meet a woman that is rejected by everybody there. To go meet this Samaritan woman who's supposed to be his enemy, who's rejected by everybody in the town. See that? The king goes specifically to the well to meet this woman and whom no one else wants. What does he tell her? He said, woman, he said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. She said, sir, you have nothing to draw with. What are you talking about? He said, ah, the water that I give you. He said, that's living water. And he said, and not only will that, when that living water gets in you, he said, it's not just going to stay there. He said, it's going to keep bubbling up like a fountain. What's that mean? It means it's going to get inside you, and you've got to tell people about it. You've got to tell people the good things the Lord's done for you and how he's had compassion upon you. You've got to get out and tell people about how he kept you from getting killed and dying and going to hell in a bull riding accident that almost killed you. You've got to get out and tell people about how the very first miracle that you ever saw, he raised your daughter from the dead and you were a lost man who had never done a thing in the world good for the kingdom of God. You've got to get out. See, that's that living water. Once that gets in you, you've got to get out and tell people that stuff. So the king of the universe is right exactly in his neighbor's backyard meeting with a woman that no one wants. Rejected, despised, unwanted. You ever felt that way? You ever felt rejected? Unwanted? Yeah. But you know what's the most startling thing about this? She says, You Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem, but our fathers say that we should worship on the mountain. He said, Woman, I tell you, the, woman is the hour is coming and now is when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but you'll worship with the heart. He said, soon it won't be about mountains and temples. He said, soon it's coming. It's going to be about your heart. He said, and you'll worship God wherever you stand in spirit and in truth, if you'll believe. He said, and even get this, he said, and not just that, he said, God is seeking people. That's what it said. It said, and the Father is seeking those worshipers. What's it mean? 
He's looking for them. He's desiring to find those worshipers, and He's looking for them. And He's looking for them all the time. He's still looking for them today. Who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. But He goes to this woman, rejected, unwanted. A woman of His enemies, in the backyard of His enemy. And the most startling thing about this entire chapter is that He goes to those people that's supposed to be his enemy. And you know, for the very first time in the Gospels, Jesus reveals himself publicly as the Christ. The very first time that Jesus revealed himself as the Savior of the world, as the anointed of God, he did it in the backyard of his enemy to a woman who was unwanted. You could say it like this. Jesus went and told this woman that he's the Messiah, he told a woman that he was the Messiah, a woman that wouldn't be welcome in probably nine out of ten churches today. And that's sad, too. That's exactly, that's your very, that's exactly the truth. That's very sad. But see, we want to know who Jesus really is. We want to know for ourselves. Because if you're following bad teaching, Bad doctrine, that, that, that stands to push you away, drive you away. I mean, if God doesn't want anything to do with you, why, would you should, why should you want anything to do with Him? See? God wants you to know that you're not unwanted. He wants you to know that you're not unwelled. He wants you to know that you may be very well rejected by those people who are supposed to love you, but you're not rejected by the Messiah. You're not rejected by the Christ. Your own mommy and daddy may hate your guts. Rightfully or unjustly. But God's love for you is unwavering. God's commitment to you is unshakable. Because, see, He made His commitment to you before you were ever born. See, Romans 5, it's a beautiful chapter. If you ever get a chance to read it, you should. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrated His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Well, you could phrase that, you could change that up, and maybe modernize that a little bit, and this is the way that the Holy Spirit said it to me. He said, God put His love on demonstration for all of the ages to see that when His beautiful Son, Jesus Christ, laid his life down, he laid his life down for every sinner. From the first sin when Adam fell to the very last one before this thing's wrapped up. See, God's committed to you. He's committed himself to you. And the good news is, he's not even looking for a way out of it. Anybody ever give their word to do something and then you're like, man, why did I do that? Like, man, <laughs> you know, it's like, oftentimes I find myself in positions where I've, I have to go somewhere and do something that I don't particularly want to do because I'm a, I'm a, really, I'm a homebody. Once I get home, it's over, Jack. I mean, unless it's an emergency, I ain't coming back out. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. I need me one of them T-shirts that says, I'm sorry I'm late, I didn't want to come. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, I mean, that's just the way I like to be, is just honest about the matter. I come to find that you'll make more ground with people when you come in there and talk to them, uh, when you talk to them and not at them and you're honest with them. You see what I'm saying there? See, I, I don't come in here in a position of ministry thinking that I'm better than anybody in this place. I don't think I'm better than anybody. As a matter of fact, when I look back over the scope of my life and the things that I've done, I kind of feel like I shouldn't even be standing here, and if I listened to the devil, I wouldn't be standing here. It's very important for you to understand that. See, God wants to take where you're at. How, how do you think God sees you? That's an interesting question, isn't it? If it was just you and Him, and you could unzip the Spirit, and you were standing there before the throne of Elohim, they were all powerful, one true God, how do you think He would look at you? See, He doesn't see you as a failure. 
I didn't see you. He doesn't see you as a, a screw-up. He doesn't see you as an addict or an alcoholic. You know what he sees? He sees what he called you to be. He sees men of God, mighty warriors for the kingdom of heaven, doing what he's called them to do. I know that that's probably drastically and diversely different than what you've heard. But you could even say it like this. He's not hung up on your mistakes and failures. See, there's this very important statement. John chapter 1. There's a wild man by the name of John the Baptist. And he's living. <laughs> he's, I mean, boy, I tell you, I like to tear them people, them religious folk up, you know, because they talk about long hair and how you dress and all that different stuff. And I say, now wait just a minute. I said, now you telling me that, that that really means something. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I say, what about, uh, what about my buddy John the Baptist who had a tunic made of camel hair and he had a leather belt around his waist and he lived out there in the woods eating locusts and wild honey. Well, I bet he had some good smell of breath. John the Baptist wouldn't be welcome in nine out of ten churches. <laughs> See that? Huh? I say, and Jesus said of him, there's never been a prophet born of a woman's womb greater than John. <laughs> John the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says there's never been someone born of a woman's womb that's greater than John the Baptist who wore a camel, a tunic of camel's hair, and had a leather, leather belt around his waist, eating locusts and wild honey. I'd say John was a wild man. But John's standing there one day. Now see, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, six months between them. John the Baptist is out there at the Jordan River uh, dunking people, baptizing people. He's telling them, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he looks up. And here he sees cousin Jesus. Now until this very moment, he, does ha he has no idea that Jesus is who Jesus really is. See, up to this point, see, he's just been cousin Jesus. But he looks up and he sees Jesus walking through the crowd. And he shouts and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I asked John later, they said, how did you know it was him? He said, the one who told me to come baptize told me when I saw the Spirit descending upon him that this is the one. Make straight his paths. So, Jesus was crucified somewhere around 30 A.D. We're at 2021 A.D. My mathematics is correct. That's about 1,990, almost 91 years come this October. It would be 9... Hundred and nineteen hundred and ninety-one years this coming April that Jesus was crucified, and when he was crucified, he became made sin. He took in himself all of the punishment for the sin of the world. Now I don't know who's the oldest one here. Sherry's sixty-six. You're welcome. You said you didn't think I'd remember, did you? So let's see. What's well, uh, that's about uh, 1900 and what 27 years? So 1920 some odd years before Sherry was born, Jesus paid the entire debt for her sin. See, First John chapter two tells us. He says, I, "I write to you, little ones, that you should not sin. But if you do sin, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is offered up not only as a propitiation for our sin, but for the sin of the entire world." Now you might say to me, "Well, you don't know what I've done." Well, I, that's true. Unless the Lord was to tell me what you've done, I don't know what you've done. But I know this much: you ain't done enough to uh, equal the sin of the entire world from the fall of Adam until the end of time. I know this much. And I don't know a lot. But I know this much. I know that your sin compared to God's love for you looks like a matchstick compared to the immeasurable vastness of the universe. What you've done compared to how He feels about you 
<laughs> can't be a <laughs> why that couldn't be tallied up by MIT. <laughs> you see what I'm saying to you? See, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, he goes. It's a shame that the church don't act like their leader, myself included, to be perfectly honest with you. It's a shame. It's a crying shame that the church thinks that they're supposed to go and sit on their big fat pews in church and wait for people to come to them when their leader went to the people. That's a shame. That's a crying shame. That's a, one of the greatest disservices that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has ever done on the earth, waited on people to come to them. When the master himself went to the people. But see, he went to the people. He went to his enemies. There's times I don't even like to talk to people I like. <laughs> and he went to his enemies. And not only did he go to his enemies, he went to a woman that's unwanted by everybody. And the very first person that he revealed on the earth, the very first person on the earth that he reveals himself publicly as the Christ, the anointed one of God, is to a woman that's rejected and unwanted and obviously immoral. Let's just say she probably wouldn't be number one on the church's hit list to go minister to. See that? Jesus went to lots of those people. He went to lots of those people. And what did he do? Did he? I didn't read anywhere where he went in there and beat that woman down with her sin. Did you hear anything? Reading about? I could read that again. We'd make sure of that. Did he call that woman? Uh, did he call her a, a horrible name? Did he call her a filthy name? Did he tell her he was, she was worthless, unwanted? No. You know what he said? I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Let that sink in. The Son of God went specifically to Samaria to meet this woman who has a horrible past. And he doesn't beat her down with her sin. He calls it to her attention. But he says, hey, I can give you living water that will bubble up in you like a fountain that will never stop. And you know what that woman did? <laughs> that woman went to town. She ran back to Sychar, shouting and rejoicing. <laughs> Happy. What'd she do? She went in there and told everybody. What'd she say? Come meet a man and tell me everything I'd ever did. <laughs> what do you think that told those people? You know someone's bad past and they're coming up to you saying, hey man, this guy's a prophet. You ought to come out here. He told me everything I ever did. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. I mean, maybe I don't want to go out there. If he's, if, he's, if, he's telling, if he's telling everything everybody's ever did, wait just a minute here. It's like, oh, wait a minute. No, no, they came out of sidecar, come and got him he, and said, come with us. Stayed, and they begged him. They said, stay with us. So what did he do? He didn't get up and politely excuse himself. It said he stayed two days. Why, he just, why Jesus just hemmed right up there with them people, his enemies. What did he do? Preach the gospel to them. Preach the love of God to them. What did they say? They said, woman, we believe now, not because of what you told us, but because we heard him for ourselves. We see for ourselves. See, there's this thing with Jesus. <laughs> it's inescapable with him. Everywhere you go in the Gospels, you see Jesus doing about four primary things. You see Jesus teaching and preaching. You see Jesus casting out demons. You see Jesus healing the sick. And you see Jesus working miracles. That was, that was the entire focus of his life for three and a half years. Everywhere he went, he went about teaching and preaching, healing all types of sicknesses and disease and casting out devils. And you know what? There was not one of those people who was born again. It wasn't one of those people a Christian. I couldn't be a Christian. He hadn't been raised from the dead. See that? They believed on him as the Messiah, but they couldn't become actually children of God until after his death, burial, and resurrection. So everything that Jesus did was for people 
that were unwanted. Matthew chapter 8. There's a leper. Man full of leprosy is what Luke's gospel tells us. Full of leprosy. <laughs> you know what that means? It means they had leprosy more than 10 years. You know what that also means? It means that body parts were falling off of him. It means that when he went through a crowd, he had to cover his face and shout unclean. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having to go through a congested city and cover your face up, shout unclean? Can you imagine how that made that man feel? Think about that. And people looking at you, looking down at you, running from you, children running from you, scared of you like you're a monster. Matthew chapter 8 records and tells us that this leper came down, fell down before Jesus, begging Him, Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, Lord. Now that man couldn't touch anybody. He had to live outside the city in a leper colony. Think about this. What if when that man got leprosy, what if he was 20 years old? What if he'd only been married about a year? What if he had a brand new baby? And now, he can't hug his wife. He can't kiss his child. He can't hold his baby. He's forced to go out and live in this leper colony completely by himself, not able to touch anybody for years. And this horrible, horrible disease, deteriorating disease, is eating away at his body to where it just kills nerve endings is what it does. And then the parts start dying, and they just fall off. Fingers, ears, goes down, fall, goes, falls before the king. Lord, have mercy on me. You know, what the, you know what the Bible says the very first thing he did? You know what the very first thing Jesus did was? Stretched forth his hand and touched him. Retch out his hand. God, reach out his hand, touch that leper. He said, I'm willing. Be cleansed. I am willing. See, Jesus settled the debate right there forever when it comes to healing. He settled the debate. It's, it's a big debate in the church today. Will God help me? Will He not help me? Will He heal me? Will He not heal me? I don't know. It's like we're sitting up there. We treat the Creator of heaven and earth like he's a, some kind of stinking lotto up there. He's got some kind of lottery balls going on up there in heaven, and you're, the balls are popping, you know, and maybe if your number comes up, you'll get it, and, maybe, and if you don't, you won't. No, Jesus said, I'm willing. And he said, I only speak the words in which my Father tells me to speak. That the words that I speak, I don't speak them on my own authority. I speak them on the authority of the one who sent me. So the one who sent me said, I am willing. Be cleansed, be whole, be set free. See, Jesus went to another place and he said, he went to the synagogue and he said it was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah and he said he went to the spot where it was written of him and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. To what? Tell us what he's anointed you to do, Jesus. Preach the gospel to the poor. Who's the poor? The people who've never heard it. See, there's more to the gospel than just Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's the pinnacle. But there's healing in the gospel. There's provision in the gospel. There's power in the gospel to break every chain. What else have you sent us? What, what else has He anointed you to do, Jesus? He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You know, bro broken heart will cause people to do a lot of things that they wouldn't normally do. To set at liberty the captive. What's a captive? Someone who's being held and bound by something against their will. To set at liberty the captive. You are, is anybody in here being held and bound by something that they don't want to be held and bound by? Praise God! He come to set at liberty the captives. Of recovery of sight to the blind. See that? To, to set free those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So think about it like this.
we have come tonight, some wonderful people, myself, Miss Karen, come tonight as representatives of the kingdom of the one true God. We'll come in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what he told his disciples? He said, go forth, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you've given, freely you've received, now freely give. And tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. So, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, gives us a measurement. I like to use this as the measuring tape, right? We like to measure things. We like to know what the story is, don't we? We like to look at our bank accounts and know how much money we've got. Kind of measure that, don't we? Paul said this. He said, I pray that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what's the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. Which is according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named not only in this age but also that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who filleth all in all. It's Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 through 22. What's the measurement in that statement? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power measured against equal to which let's break that down in a way that we can understand that according to there would mean the same measurement of power is available to the one who believes as the exact same measurement of power that God used when He raised His Son from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places that's the same amount of power that's in this room right now to set you free, if you want to be. Now, a lot of people don't want to be. You know that a lot of people don't want to be set free because their affliction becomes their identity, right? It could be sickness, could be disease, could be many different things. But I'm telling you, God has an identity for you that's not the one that you're carrying in your back pocket. God has an identity for you that you've never even dreamed of nor stepped into. You know, <laughs> you know, in a year from now, you know, you could be out preaching the gospel somewhere, talking about, you know what, I was in one of these places one time, but the power of the gospel set me free. The power of the Lord set me free. You don't have to be a recovering addict. You know why? Because if you've been born again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, If anyone be in Christ, they're a brand new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. At this state in the game, if you've been born again, even in the position that you find yourself, 2 Corinthians 5 and 22 says, For he made him a new no sin to be made sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if you've been born again, and I understand where we're sitting, and I understand why we're all here. But God says, still considers you His righteousness in Christ. You have none of your own, but you have Jesus Christ's righteousness. That's, that don't get no better than that. The power of God's available to set you free. He wants you to be set free. He wants you to be delivered and completely set free from whatever it is that's woven itself in your flesh and into your mind, causing you to do those things in which you don't want to do. You ever been there? You ever find yourself? What is it like? It's like someone bashing your head in it, that temptation, isn't it? Well, I might as well just go ahead and do it because this is what I always do. Right? And it seems like the pressure is from the outside and then the pressure is from the inside, isn't it? It feels like it's going to either collapse you or cause you to blow up and it's like that repetitive hammering of the mind isn't it oh man wow just like it comes you do good through the day but then the night time comes 
Huh? Then you fight it off and you go to sleep and you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and there it is. Can't get rid of it. About to drive you crazy, isn't it? You know that if, you, if I could prove to you in the light of the Bible that that's really not you that's doing that to you, would you believe it? First Corinthians or First Peter chapter five, Peter says this. He said, Be sober and be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, therefore resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that your brethren around the world are experiencing similar trials and circumstances and tribulation. Well, if you look up the word devil in a Bible dictionary or a Greek concordance, contrary to popular belief, the devil is not this little cute figure hopping around with a pointy tail and a pitchfork and horns, right? And if I look in a Bible dictionary, the Bible tells me that the devil is the slanderer of the brethren. I've got, I don't know, 15 or 18 different Bible dictionaries on my phone right now. And they'll tell me, he's the accuser of the brethren. You know what it doesn't tell me? It doesn't tell me how he operates. Now, why is that important? Because, see, if I don't understand how he operates, I won't know how to defend myself against him. And yet, I'll not find his method of operations in any Bible dictionary that I've ever read. So how do I get that? Where do I get that definition from? I start studying Greek and how those words were used before the Bible was written, before the New Testament was written. And diabolos... Diabolos is the root word there, translated into the singular form, devil. And if you break those two down, you get a method of operation about how he does things. Dia means to thoroughly penetrate. Has anybody in here ever deer hunted, seen deer hunting? You're a deer hunter? All right. So, if I'm deer hunting, I want my arrow... Perfect shot, double lung, right? I want my arrow to go through one side and complete penetration and go completely out the other side. That's the Greek word dia. means to thoroughly penetrate. Bolos means to throw. So when I compound these two words together, I find that how he operates is that he comes against my mind, hurling accusations, you should have did this, but you didn't. You shouldn't have did this, but you did it. And he comes, and he starts hammering the mind. Ba-bam, ba-bam, ba-bam. He wants to get in that mind. Why? Because he knows that if he can get in your mind, he can get a hold of your mouth. And once he gets a hold of your mouth, you've got trouble. Because you'll start talking yourself into all kinds of things that you shouldn't have done. I'll give you a perfect example. I have not had a drink. My, old, my son will be eight years old this coming October. I have not had a drink in eight years this coming April. And I don't want to drink. But guess what? If a song comes on the radio that starts singing about drinking, guess what I start thinking about? And then, when I start singing about it, I'll give you a perfect example. Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots. Ruined your black tie fair. Little friends in low places. Huh? Doesn't hurt anything, does it? Except for the fact that you're talking yourself into doing things that you don't need to be doing. Then your mind starts getting tracked on it, doesn't it? Hmm. Then what happens? Then you can start tasting it, can't you? Hmm? Start taste. Boy, you can taste that wild turkey, can't you? See that? So once the enemy gets in the mind, then he's controlling, he has the ability to pressure you, turn the heat up on you, continue to hammer your mind, and cause you to do that in which you truly don't want to do but you talk yourself into it and then you know what he'll do you know you'll start to get a pretty good handle on it and then your buddy will call ah oh, come on man 
It's just one beer. It's just one joint. Come on, it's just one hit. Huh? And then you get to thinking, you know, it sure is awful lonesome sitting here by myself. I can tell you right now, I had about a hundred more friends when I was a drinking and a raising hell than I do preaching the gospel. It's a long, lonely road, Jack. I'll tell you. It's preaching the gospel. It's a long, lonely road. Because you know who don't get called to go to parties? This guy. <laughs> Why? Because they know I'm going to get in there and preach the gospel to them. But they don't want to hear that when they're in there trying to sin, do, <laughs> do wrong. huh? You're not going to get invited to parties. They know you're a gospel preacher that really, that really loves the Lord. Right? You're going to spend an awful lot of time alone. So when you're trying to quit, and then people, they don't call no more. It gets lonely. And it gets hard, don't it? It gets tough. Then the enemy comes against your mind, hammering your mind, boom, boom, boom. And that's how you find yourself falling back into the position that you find yourself. You see that? Does that make sense to anybody? Now, if you'd like to be set free from that tonight, we want to pray for you. If you would like to walk out of this room and never be called and never have to call yourself an addict again, we want to pray for you and help you. doesn't mean a temptation won't come, but what it does mean is that you'll walk out of here filled with a power that will cause you to overcome if you'll stay with it. So I told you, we preach about two hours. No one fell asleep. That's good. I almost fell asleep once myself. Hey, we appreciate y'all. Thank you all for coming. If you need prayer, we'll, be, we'll hang around here just a few minutes. If you got questions, we'll hang around. We're, we're going to hang around. Tim may sing and Sherry may dance. We don't know what will happen.